0: This is Charles Kirsch and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am so honored to announce my guest, Brandon Maggart. On August 4th, Backstage Babel celebrated a year of episodes, and I can't think of a better way to start year two than my interview with this Broadway legend. He received a Tony nomination for the role of Buzz Richards in Applause, but as an integral part of Broadway's Golden Age, he also appeared in Lorelai, Kelly, New Faces of 1968, We Interrupt This Program, Musical Chairs, and One Night Stand. Off-Broadway, he appeared in Sing Muse, Home. Wedding band, put it in writing, and like other people, and he toured with Halsey Poppin and in the best of burlesque with Sherry Britton. On screen, you may have seen him in the original cast of Sesame Street, the films Pearly, Dressed to Kill, and The World According to Garp, and the hit sitcom Brothers, among many other projects. He is also the author of several popular memoirs you can find on Amazon. And before we get to the interview, remember that if you like what you've heard over the past year, please leave a review of the podcast on iTunes using stars, comments, or both. And now, without further ado the wonderful Brandon Maggart. Well, I would love to start by asking you how you first became interested Early. in
1: theater. A, I'm in a country boy a long time ago, small southern town, and uh, I, I, it was not very verbal. There were a lot of crickets, a lot of quiet in a small southern town, and, and I liked a little girl next door, and and uh, you just sit and talk not much enough. One day I just didn't mean to I just started singing she liked it and I said oh there's something here (laughs) there's something here there's something to this and then I had a sister 10 years older than I Justine and she was in high school and I was just a kid and in in small towns you know the soda soda shop place all the high school girls would go and and sit at the table in the back and have their soda, and my sister was stuck with taking me with her, her her, her little brother, and she um uh, she would have me back then. There was our gang comedies. I know you've probably seen them on replay, and uh, yeah, and there was Froggy and the others. And at that time, I could do Froggy's voice. Which, uh, I can't do it now, but I was really good at it back then. And I would she'd say, "Buddy," that was my name. Everybody still calls me Buddy, but Buddy said do froggy and I would do froggy and all these girls would, oh and they would do and I said yeah I'm on to something here I'm really on to something and then I, <laughs> I, I I started singing in church and, and around and, and uh and singing with the uh, the quartet high school a quartet We 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 did a lot I was tenor second tenor and we won some contests the big thing that happened, as I say, wasn't very verbal. I played football and I was, and I was a boxer. I was a boxer and everything. But I have here is a play called *The Valium. Now, this is a one-act play. And in high school, the math teacher said, "Buddy, would you like to do a play?" I never thought about doing a play. I'd never seen a play. The first time I I saw a play, I didn't see it. I was in it. Later on, the first time I'd never seen an opera until I was. It was in it. <laughs> it's thin, but I was in it, and it kept on like that. But um so I th- so I read it, and it's about um, a prisoner. He's on death row. He's about to be executed, and the and his somebody a young girl, ten years younger, she wants to see him. She goes to see the warden, and and want and says she thinks he might be her brother and she wants to find out if he's he's been missing for a long time and and the prisoner has spoken to the warden before he said i don't want to see anybody he's I'm ready to die i'm ready to face execution in the morning and she tells the warden that well but i i know there's stories he used to tell me when i was little and he read books and he used to uh, quote Shakespeare a little bit, and in and, and his own words, he would do some of the stories of the plays, and that that I really liked that. And maybe maybe if I could get to see him, I could talk with him and bring him out out of whatever he's in, and, and recognize it could be that he's not my brother, but we could try it. And so the warden lets him in, and she goes through her whole thing about it, and. My character, rather stoic, kind of thug, gangster-like. I talk nothing about any Shakespeare, and uh, and she said, "Okay." She finally gives up and leaves, and he uh, and he turned to and says, and he says, mutters to himself, "You know, cowards die many times before their death; the valiant taste of death but once." So then you know that he really is her brother, but he doesn't want her to know that. Uh, he's this guy that killed people, you know? So we, we did that and, uh, and it was, real. now the thing came was, as I said, being not very verbal, there was uh, the English teacher, her name was Hattie Terry. And she was a rather large woman. She had wore like really thick makeup and it was like caked on. And I could get nowhere with her. We had no communication about what this poem was about or, or anything, it was just, It was frustrating. Actually, other people could. I don't know why I couldn't. So we did the play in front of the high school. And she, I didn't know she was in the audience. I just did the play. And I didn't think much about it. It just seemed natural to do the play. And I was making my exit off stage. And the door opened. And there stood Hattie Terry. Tears rolling down her cheek. Right through her makeup. Making little canyons right through her makeup. And Charles, I said to myself then, There's communication that can be made here by doing a play, by doing somebody else's work, by being on stage, by not just by making people laugh, but by making them feel something down deep. And so that that was my big breakthrough of, uh, boy, this is something I knew I didn't like to be on, on the farm too much. I did like to hunt and fish and and I would go out in the but I go out in a cornfield, it make me go out in a cornfield. I don't know if you ever seen a cornfield on a river bottom that would go from one end to the other as far as you could see. And you were a kid up with a hole right in the middle of it, can't see either end, and you're chopping the little weeds that were growing up between stalks, and it's hot and the sun's coming down, you look nothing, no sound, nothing. And i look up and see back then, even see a a jet, a high high plane flying overhead, going somewhere. And I said, that sounds interesting to go somewhere. Then I I started writing and I I read Treasure Island. And my friend had a a wonderful house in this Carthage, a small town in Tennessee. And there was a cupola above this old house. And they had a library. These are really interesting the people. Aunts, there. uncles, grandma, everybody lived in separate rooms, a huge house. They had servants. It was really strange. And the two people I knew, Johnny and Alice, were young and they went to school with me. And, and but they had this library. This library, and I was going in by myself, and it was just covered with leather-bound books. I don't know first editions or whatever but leather bound books and i knew i knew there was something in those books and i pull them out and in some of them were have these wonderful photographs i mean paintings especially mm-hmm. treasure island oh my god oh my god and i took it up into the cupola and read it up there and it was like i was in heaven i was above the, the, the earth in this cupola above the small town Transfixed into this scene, in the in the with the tr- so guy yelling at me for the tr- treasure and everything, and and then I read Black Beauty. So I said, "This is good. I think I'll write." Huh? So I started writing it. Oh yeah. So I, I'm a I'm a pony, and I'm in the barn pound, and I'm running around, and there's the fence. Oh yeah. And I run and I jump the fence and I'm on the other side now. And what now? Where do I go? I have no idea. I haven't lived long enough to know what's out there. And so that kind of led me down that that kind of path. And in this small town, there was a wonderful character, a woman named Josie, Josie, Miss Josie Reynolds. And she had a, uh, a very good friend named, a character actor, named Olin Howland. Now, Olin Holland had been in so many of those old movies. He was, he came, one time he said, did you, yeah, I was in a movie with Elizabeth Taylor and I spanked her bottom, you know? And and he was always like the postmaster or the barkeeper or whatever. But, but he and Miss Josie were pals out in Hollywood. And Miss Josie's son, Edward had been a stand-in for Rudolph Valentino, you know, for the camera shots. And so she and Olin Howland made friends and they were poker players. They were big gamblers and they toured around and they, he would she would bring him to Carthage and, and that's when he came to see the play. And when he came to see the play, that one-act play, he said, told her that Buddy had, I remember the quote, <laughs> had the most undeveloped talent that he'd ever seen. So I thought, well, maybe there's something here. I don't know. And so then I'm, I'm, I'm I do I do musicals and comedy. I do talent shows and I, I did Ramona and I sang three songs in Ramona. Nobody else sang. But and then I went off to college and went to Swanee, University of the South, and it was a ten thousand acre, wonderful Episcopal school at of atop this mountain thing, and I played football there, and I got concussions, so I knew I wasn't going to play. I got three concussions playing football, but while there, my dorm woman, this uh, 20 was one of those old, not left Oxford, the upper wore gowns, was really good school and tough, but when my you're... grandmother, whatever you called it back then, she had a daughter named Jenny that was a singer on the Perry Como show, uh, with the great Charles Sink back then. I, I didn't know, I thought Ray Charles was Ray Charles, but Ray Charles was a guy that had Ray Charles singers. Later I met him and we became friends and actually his daughter did a TV show with me. But but she heard me sing and she said, I think you should come to New York. You should come to New York and study with my teacher. She she teaches some of the best people. I said, well, how about I do that? She said, well, I don't know, come to a place for you to stay and you can study with her and see what goes. So I had a friend and we hitchhiked after school that year to Florida to get his grandmother's car to drop it off somewhere to pick it up. And we drove it to New York, to New Jersey. And uh, then I left, he dropped me off there. I caught a bus over to New York. And I I looked up John Cullum. Now, while in college, I did a lot of plays and operas and and, and and John was in a lot of plays with it, so uh, John was there, and I, I I saw a lot of plays. I saw a, a, a Picnic with Ralph Meeker and and Joanne Woodward, and and Joanne Woodward studied with my voice teacher, and and so my voice teacher took me, and I was I was you know I fell off the turnip truck. I didn't know what Broadway and Sardis and all that was and Ralph Meeker was also a student, and after the show then, and Joanne Woodward's Janice Rule's understudy, And and she, uh, Janice Rule was out, and then I I saw this girl that I'd seen in in this voice studio, who was always kind of slunky with hair like this. But boy, she stepped out on that stage with this long blonde flowing hair. It was Joanne Woodward, and she was gorgeous. Also Paul Newman was in the play too. And Eileen Heckart, who I worked with later on, but, but and and they invited me to go to Sardi's with the math with Helen Gallagher. She's a big star, and I said I have to go home. I couldn't face Sardi's and all the thing. It was just too much, too much for me. So then I went back. Went back, and I said, okay, this is. But I, I like this, but except that it, in New York, it, this is new to me. I'm used to houses. And everybody here lived in these incredibly tall buildings. And they rode in a subway in the ground, and the Bronx is up and the battery's down. And it was, and get on the elevator and you go up 10 floors. And I played it, stayed in this place, 10 floors up down in Stuyvesant Village, this, this girl's husband, she, and he was, had been a singer. And to, to be up in, that high up, you have no idea in a country boy what that was like. It being up, and I'd just seen the movie Rear Window with Jimmy Stewart. And you could look out from the balcony, look across at all these windows, and all these different lives going on inside all these windows. Can you imagine? And of course, my mind was making this narrative in this window and in that one, and in that window, and that window. And I was no longer in the middle of a cornfield chopping corn. I was here where a lot, of, where things were happening. So I went back and I, I I transferred to the University of Tennessee, where they had the theater programs and the operas, and that's, that's where I did the plays with John Cullen. And uh, I majored, I was a journalism major, but I, I did most of my work in, in theater, did the carousel theater and the UT theater and a lot of, I was constantly in plays. I did with Come Back to Little Sheba with John and what else in Petrified Forest. I did uh, St. Jones, uh, I did, did a lot of plays. And I did I did uh, Germont and Traviata with the Knoxville Symphony. Now I was, I was 18 or 19 and the other two, I played the old man Germont. And you my little soul. But it, the two other leads, Alfredo and, and Violetta were professional singers. In their thirties, and here I was as a teenager playing the old guy in that. But it it was, it came off quite well. And then I won the Grace Moore Operatic Award. They have a oh. contest in Tennessee every year, at least they did every two years for professional singers. And so I went up and I sang a couple of arias, and they, I won. It wasn't that much then, but it seemed like a lot today. It's you know get lunch by lunch was what that was. And I'd, I'd gotten married. I was, I was in the Air Force ROTC, and it was just a time of the uh, of the Korean War, and I, I so my my career was going to be on the Air Force. I was going to be a jet pilot, and so I'd done all the plays, but I was going to be a jet pilot. I was graduated. I was graduating. I'd won honors and went off to to the camp at Randolph Field, and I was taken up in the planes. But, um, and, I, and I came back, and all of a sudden the war was over. And they really didn't need any more pilots. And I'd taken a year of German in one summer, and they gave me the ID exam, and it was no longer twenty twenty. And they they said they, I couldn't be a pilot anymore. He said, "Well, you can go in. You can be a, a, a second lieutenant." I don't. What happens if I don't want? I said, "Well, you that's our contract. You made a contract to be a pilot. You can just leave. You can walk out right now. We don't need pilots anyway." And I was married by then and had a, a child, Jennifer, uh, who who's uh, now with me. She upset this up to get started. So I said, Lou Jen said, "We want to go to New York with me. Let's take this big Jennifer up there, and I, I'll become a, a big Broadway star. and maybe a singer a Rigoletto at the met. How about that?" Said, okay, so we get in the car. <clears throat> we get in the car. We're <clears throat> Excuse me, we're headed to New York. We go across the George Washington Bridge and the river is frozen over. Frozen, solid. It was so cold you wouldn't believe it. And I said, this may be a sign. <laughs> this is not going to be as easy as
0: I thought. So we've
1: got a small apartment on the Upper West Side. $60 a month. And uh, I so I had... I, I, well, how do I get in a Broadway show? And I hadn't thought about that. How do you do it? <laughs> you know? So I th- they found out, well, you, you, if you don't have an agent, you're up, up the creek. But you could go to chorus auditions. I don't want to sing in a chorus. I'm an opera star. Okay, what else are you going to do? So, so I said, all right. So I went to... Back then there were a lot of stock things and so forth. And I I went to an audition and I showed up in my coat and tie and and I got to this place and there were, there was a line all the way down the street and around the corner. And if this was just for the non-equity people, they'd already seen the equity people. And for the back then in Broadway choruses, two tennis and two sopranos, I don't think. And they probably have taken the two baritones already. But if they hadn't, maybe there's one left. And all these people are lined up to get that one job. Okay. I go on, I get in, finally get up, and I go into the stage school, and I'm waiting, and I'm listening to a couple of singers auditioning before me. And Charles Kirsch, I heard some of the best voices oh. that I had ever heard. Oh, well, there was a tenor right before me. I mean, Charles Huddleson, but something Huddlesome was his last name. Oh, so I went out and I, sang and I sang a few bars of My Heart is So Full of You. Thank you. Oh. I'm shrinking off. Holy cannolis. I've got to come up with a new plan. I wasn't good enough to be in a chorus. Not good enough. Back then, all the chorus people had these operatic voices. Then, as you know, later on, the trend you had the singers had to sing as well, and the dancers that couldn't, the singers that couldn't dance were up the creek, kind of, unless they were doing a major role. So I, I got to figure out things. In the meantime, I did, a, I got a job at Radio City Music Hall as a guide because my my degree was in radio and television journalism, and radio and television, and then, I got a job as a guide, and I would take, take the tour of the people around the studios, and it, it was one stop with the Studio 8H uh, and all the studios, and that's where the, at the time it was, but uh, the big Saturday Night Musical, not, later on, not Saturday Night Live, but uh, the Hit Parade was on back then. And that was a big deal. But uh, there was a, one place you stopped, and you did a, a sound effects demonstration for the people. Now this is really prehistoric stuff. It, now you know that when I was a kid, there was no television until I was in high school. We had one set and everybody came around, the kids in the neighborhood came around to watch Kukla, Fran and Ollie kind of doodle around on television like that. But I, I, I did my sound effects shows and I'd have fun. I'd improvise, I'd sing with it. With the coconut things on the sand, here comes the horse. And I did that and for a while. And I I go back and audition. And a friend of mine worked at Radio City Music Hall next door in the men's glee club. Now that the glee club had been there for 25 years, and had been opera singers, uh, Jan Pierce, Leonard Warren, others had been in that glee club and had gone on to. It was a great job. You could go there and the rockets, and the Corps de Ballet and the symphony and the big stage, up. and back then it was really popular and out of, especially out of town people all lined up to get in there. But you couldn't get that job because again, if, if you were in the job, you, you kept the job until you couldn't sing anymore or they, they finally said, I, you'd become, or you'd move up into the corporation. And do a jazz desk, desk job or something. So my friend who had the job had a job at the bass, and he said, to buddy, run across the street real quick and sing a couple of arias for Ralph Hunter is his name. And so I ran across and I sang two Arias and I got the job. I was in the Glee Club. I was in the men's glee club at Radio City Musical, no longer guided in BC. This is fantastic. Again, it was just and I was getting paid, Charles, for doing what I like to do. Out on this big stage and uh, tuxedos and, and singing the, and the, the other acts that would come in, I would watch from the wings. Charles, let me tell you, no matter what, ever, wherever I was in the show, I would always watch. If I was in rehearsal, I'd get a break, everybody else would go to the basement. I would watch rehearsal. I would watch from the wings what they were doing in this act. I would watch the, the look at the lights, the sound see what was going on, what what was really good and what was not not good. I like to watch the Rockets and the Chord de Ballet. And uh so I was I was in, as we say, I was in Hog Heaven. And uh I was so thrilled just to be out on stage. Now I don't know if I I'm gonna tell you one story it's a little bit off color, but in this there were there were 25 men in the dressing room. There were 20 at a time. You'd work four weeks and they'd have a week off. Four shows, three to four shows a day. And in between the shows, you, there were rehearsal studios where you could go work on your repertoire or you could play contract bridge in between. So I I was making $10 more than I was making across the street. And, it was, and, and in the dressing room, these guys, and they were all, you could see them walking down, they all coat and tie, they'd walk in like this and all well-established men. And but in the dressing room, the, their big activity, the most fun they had was a fart contest. A fart contest. I, I, I did. I'm a fine boy, but I could not stand that. I could not stand that, Charles. And you just, and there was a bass from Texas was dressed right next to me. And he, he was the champ. He always won the fart contest. And, uh, and one day they said, all right, place this, for you on the for for spring is here, spring is here. And so everybody got up to go, and I was just, I, I got so angry, and, and everybody's on the way to the elevator. And I said, all right, you sons of, everybody stop. And I was fed up with it and I said, all right, listen to this. And I was ready to expel my guess, and it didn't come out the way I thought it was going to come out. <laughs> he did what they call it now, a shark. And I, I missed the show, and they laughed all the way down the stage and did the show without me. But then we got fired after 25 years. Wait a minute, play that back for me. I've been here 25 years, and I finally get this job. I got the wife and a kid and a thing, and you say we're being replaced by. Uh, a, a college group that's coming in to sing a few songs and uh, the the, the glee, men's glee club would no longer be here. I was crushed. You know, how much, what am I going to do now? Back in the dressing room, Clyde, the bass, said, hey, buddy. He said, I see here in the paper. said, they're having a hog calling contest. Maybe you ought to go there. It says, generous reward. I, I've never called hogs in my life. I don't want to be in a hog calling contest. I'm going to sing Rigoletto at the Met, so forget it. So I went to my voice lesson on West 57th Street, uh, right across the corner from Carnegie Hall. And I leave the, the lessons between shows. And I'm going heading back to the to Radio City Music Hall to do my next show. I've got some time. So I'm walking, it's kind of drizzling rain. And I'm walking in front of Carnegie Hall and down the street there. And... And over across the street was Nola Studios. And I'd auditioned there. There was some, you know, Nola Studios. And they told Sineway Pianos down below. But Sto- Nola Studios is up there. I'm walking along and I said, that's where they were having this contest, this hog calling contest. So I'm walking along and I said, man, I got time, maybe I'll walk across the street just, just to see. What in the world did having a hog-calling contest in New York City? So, my goodness, I went over there, and I, I had uh, on the elevator up to the third floor where I used to go up to audition, Summer Stock, or whatever it was. And, and I got off the elevator, and there were bright lights. There were other men sitting there waiting to audition or whatever. And I looked on the corner, and the door was open, and there were cameras, cameras in there, bright lights, and it was it was a big deal, and 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 the stage manager said, uh, you'd like to audition?" I said, "Not really." I said, "No." I, I said, "I, I can anyway." I've got to go back to the Radio City Music Hall because I I I got another show in pretty soon, and I guess so I got to head back. He said, "Don't worry, I'll get you in right away." I said, ah! and, "And next thing you know, I'm walking in the door. I I'd never called hogs. I'm walking in the door, and." The lights are going on, they had these men in suits. We call people in suits. And E. Wolfenson and Dusty War, were in Music Man at the time, were in their plaid, being covered, the TV cameras and everything. And they were two of the judges, plus a lot of the, the ad men were there for this Merkel Foods Company, the meat people, you know, ham and, and all that stuff. And, and I walked out and I, and he said, okay. He said, this is Brandon Maggart. And uh, okay, Brandon. I said, okay, what? He said, call hogs. I said, what kind? That place got so quiet. And I realized at that moment I was probably the only body in that place that knew anything at all about hog calling. So I said, I said, you want me to call uh, uh or Poland China? You want me to call Old South way over there on the- I saw her little piglets up close and it was deadly and silent. And so I improvised a few things. I, I did, Ooh, pig calling across. I won. Well, wow. I, <laughs> I won the National Hog Coffee Championship. And I was on the Jack Parr show that night doing this thing in a rubriculous radio show. And this was b- bizarre beyond all belief. And I called my wife b- before I did the show. I said, I said, Lujan, I'm going to be on Jack Parr show tonight. And I said, she said, what are you singing? I said, I'm not singing. I'm calling hogs and hung up. <laughs> it was a terrible thing to do. But I, got, I was laughing. I can imagine her on the other end of the line thinking about that. And so I went on the Parr show. And it was it was a, quite a wonderful little segment in the beginning. Jackpaws oil calling, and so I said, "Well, I, I explained to him the whole thing just like I explained to you." I thought they people who don't know anything about calling hogs. <laughs> I said, "But I did it, and I won the contest." And I, I said, "I even called hogs in German for him." I said, "Come and see, fine Schwein!" Got a big studio laughing. It was a big. It, was, it really went over well. Uh, but he didn't ask me to sing it was over and was gone so then I was back on the street again and so I said well all right, I gotta change my act I got I can't be in the chorus so I, thought, I gotta be different I gotta do something to get their attention but as you know you walk out on stage and it's black you can barely make out maybe a table going across a few seats and a few people sitting out them with glasses and pick out a pair of glasses or something mm-hmm. and if somebody laughs you can see the teeth or something like that. so i thought about this and i i'm a pretty good comic mind pretty good fertile mind it, my mind is always going and so i said okay i better get their attention i did this a series of auditions to get jobs and i think the first one was it might have been for kelly which is, you know all about kelly Yes, with Anita Gillette and Don Francis. So yeah. the first one I did was, oh, I walked out on stage by myself, and I just had my my jacket on, and I walked out. I had the piano player over here, and uh, I walked out on stage, on stage and stood there. I didn't do anything, and you can, you know how you can see them out of these corners out there And then they stop, like look up, who's this crazy guy? He's just standing there. And then I, I did this, and I reached into my pocket, and I pulled out a, a wadded up paper bag, held it up like this. Like, there's something in here that, like you've never seen the likes before in all your life. And so I uncrinkled the bag, and I stick my hand in there to pull whatever it is out, and there's nothing. So I look up and sing, somebody stole my gal. Somebody stole my gal. Somebody came and took her away. She didn't even say that in the very end. I hold the high seat for so long that the pianist who started serving can't stop me. And but and it's holding me so long that, and right. I was laughing, I could, it was piercing, I know, and it was going on, and the piano player was trying to cut me off, and the guy stepped up, my friend stepped up from the wings and shot, me. I got I got the job. <laughs> They, they put somebody, they had another person cast in the part, they put me in to, to play the part of, for others, the, the bouncer. And so I, that's how I got in that show. And I I did a lot of crazy auditions like that, where we'd make up scenarios. I got into the first Fels of Pop'em I did with another such, so I can't remember exactly what it was, uh, that kind of audition. But uh, that, that's, that's how I got into Kelly. And uh, you know about, Anita, Anita and I are still friends. Matter of fact, Anita needed to We we did that show, and then we'd seen each other, and all these years, many years later, I was doing a uh, brothers a sitcom, and Anita came in, already a big star on Broadway. Back then, did you know Broadway? You might know. not be known throughout the world, or throughout yeah. the country even, for to a lot of people. But you could people really big stars would come out to do little guest spots. Anita came out and she played my wife on Brothers, and we had Charles. We had the end of the scene, of the whole thing. Sure. I don't know how they got got the got the rights to do it, but I know as I I, I listened to, to to yours and Tom Jones' uh, uh, show, and I loved it. And he talked about the Fantastics, oh, and we can talk about that later on if you like. But I don't know how they got the rights from from Tom and Harvey to do try to remember. And in the show, Anita's on the balcony, like Romeo and Juliet kind of thing. And and she didn't want to see me anymore. And I'm trying to tell him, and I said, remember back then when, when I used to sing to you, she she said, yeah, try to remember. I said, "Uh, no, I won't come. (laughs) Then then she goes back in, so then I start singing. Try to remember the time in September when I was a young and cattle fell home. try to remember and if you remember then follow and she comes down to where I'm standing up then she comes up and I forget to say bless bless you if she sneezes and she sneezes and I say bless you and the audience really laughs, and we kiss. And the music under that chart, try to remember, and it was the kiss, it's kind of known as the kiss. And either Gillette and I holding this kiss, the music went mm-hmm. It is so romantic and so wonderful. And neither I, we're still in touch. But, uh, oh boy, Kelly. Now, if you know, my first Broadway show, I've been an off-Broadway show, and won awards this is my first Broadway show. I was so excited. And again, I would watch rehearsal and I would be in a scene, I'd go off and watch what was going on. Now Moose and Eddie, Eddie Lawrence and Moose Charlotte had written this wonderful little talk. It was like a Kurt Weil kind of thing. It was like a, a kind of an extended one act thing, kind of a little bit like what, what Tom and Harvey did with the one act, regional one act of the Fantastics where it was just originally one act up at Columbia University. But this is one act, but so it really did need extending. So here it comes. Hollywood comes in to take over. And they had writers come in. It was a mess. It was really a mess. Great cast. Oh, my goodness. That all is wonderful. Ella Logan. You know who Ella Logan was? She was, yes, oh, my yes. gosh. She was wonderful. And Mickey Shaughnessy and, and Leon Janney and... and uh, but, and, and, and Don Franks, of course, played the guy that jumped off the bridge. And, and I was the understudy. We never had rehearsals, you know, never had understudy rehearsal. And he, in the show, he has to jump off this bridge, high bridge up in the, in the rafters. And of course, the rope catches him and never had rehearsal. And I said, my God, what if I, <laughs> of course, they never got around to that? We were in Philadelphia and it was going so bad. And I was leaving the, I was I was leaving the dressing room, going down the alley out of the Schubert in Boston, and it was a couple some people coming down the side exits there, and they'd apparently been in the loft. I don't know way up there, and they'd like come out into the street, and they like they'd been through a storm or something, and I'm walking behind them down the alley, and one guy said, Oh my God, I sat in that damn balcony for a week. I thought that son of a bitch would never jump. <laughs> he pro- he probably knows something so it don franks was really wonderful i just loved that guy he was wonderful and he was really a hundred percent in that role and, and anita was beautiful of course i wanted to change where the song the song was and herbie Ross said told me to walk away to leave him alone she had a song of I'll never go there anymore which was and his wife she always sang it uh in the cabarets for, for, for years. She was wonderful. She recorded that. But uh, Anita was wonderful in it, but it was staged wrong, and I was trying to get her. I was always trying to get people to do, hey, you, you're, you're doing this wrong. You told her to get, I mean, Brandon, leave me alone. Okay. So, and we opened, as you know, we opened and closed in in one night. And every, along the way, people, you'd go to rehearsal, you'd go look at the cardboard and it's cardboard and say, oh yeah. Avery Travers not here. Okay. Dick's not here. Ella Logan is not here. Oh my God. Yeah, Wilfred Bram, he's still here. I'm still here. Okay, I'm on. <laughs> and and when we opened one of the critics says the luckiest person in this was Ella Logan. She got out before it and before we went to New York. Yep, yep. I've been at two of the biggest flops of all time, I think. Held the pop and Joe Lyson and Red and, and and Kelly. Of course, Kelly with David Susskind, producer, and heard uh, uh, Anita telling about him calling, calling everybody. in the next day on a Monday, we op- we opened on a Saturday night. And actually, I I said mm, I called the box office Monday morning. I said, and I get tickets. They said, I'm sorry, the show closed. I said, we got to the theater. I don't know who was thinking what. We got to this theater. I've forgotten which one it was. The theater that the set was too big <laughs> for the proscenium. There's a whole big thing with a cabin over on on this. We come on, it every, and for it to come on, you, you could barely see the front door. It was just awful. <laughs> so you can get the idea. Everything was going on. But anyway, of called us on the stage and said, "He's very dramatic. You've probably seen ever tapes of his show or something. He, he, you know, he could hold the stage himself." I will be back. I will be back, and we'll show him. And we, we, so we we all packed up and went home. Yeah. That was Kelly. I get better after that.
0: Yes. Yes, to ask you, I would love to ask about some of the off-Broadway work that you did before, Kelly, like Sing Muse yes. and put it in writing.
1: Sing Muse was my first show in New York. And that was Karen Morrow was her first show as well. Bill Penn directed It was written by Joe Raposo and Eric Siegel. Now, Eric Siegel wrote uh, Love Stories, the movie. And Joe uh, so oh, Raposo Later, I went to work with him. I'd worked with him in stock, and then later on uh, on Sesame Street. But at the time, I didn't know. We didn't know anything. it went quite well. It was going quite well in, in rehearsal, and Karen Morrow, oh, Ralph Stanley was in it. And we had a rousing number called whatever became of the Wrath of the Achilles. I played Patroclus, the manager, and Paul played Achilles, and Ralph Stanley played Menelaus, the manager. Achilles is a boxer and I'm the manager, and we're singing this, whatever became of the Wrath of Achilles, a rousing number. It was so much fun to do, I can't tell you story. Uh, one of the last previews, Chan brought my daughter Jennifer to see the show, and it was a rake stage, a wake audience going up like this, and they, of course, for her to see, they, they sat in the front row, and it was like the matinee before the evening performance. And it, that number, that big rousing number came in at the end of the first act. It was, what ever became of the rest of the kids? And it just booming. Paul, Michael, me, we're blowing the roof off and then boom and then do a, I think we did a uh, an encore, a little section like that, blowing the roof off. But during the number, Jennifer, little Jennifer, what, six, five or six years old, she's she stands up in the front row, bus- her mother it starts conducting it now the audience can see her conducting but and jen blue jen didn't know what to grab her and pull her back but make a scene or just to do it the audience is loving it we're loving it we're singing this we're singing like Craig. of course the producer is hating it <laughs> but she was having the time of her life she, she had no idea she was doing it she was just standing up it Swept up in this big number, and later on it came back to intermission. Her mother said that was great. But she remembers that, and she thought she was put down. She to this day, she felt bad about she made a mistake. This little kid, I don't know. It's a terrible thing. I guess we thought we were doing it right, and whatever. But anyway, so then they come to me and they said, uh, "Buddy, we got a song. I didn't have a solo song, but we got we got a, a, a solo for you." But this is the last. This tonight's the last preview for, for opening. Do you want to open with it tomorrow night, or, or do you want to? But this is five o'clock, and we got the preview at, at seven or seven thirty or eight. I said, "Give me the music. Let me take a look." And so I learned the song and went on and did it that night, not knowing if any word would come out properly, any note would hit the right tone, anything but. It was so wonderful for me. It was a very soft ballad. The guy Rusty was Stephen S- and show and Rusty told me after said Stephen said, "Now that's how you sing a song." Time to blame for his shame. Now he's hooted and booted. He's and the line, "Goodbye the triumphal arch, we always had in." And I could back then could falsetto. Always had in mind. Can't do it now. It was so beautiful and touching, and so that was my outlet of the show. And Steven Sondheim said, said that, so that made it for me. And that's that's the show that the critics said you don't have to go down there. Just open your windows in Midtown, you can hear hear Karen Morris saying. But I made my association with Bill Penn there, and then he uh, actually I don't know, before or after that at the same at the same theater. Van Damme Theater was a play called Like Other People. It's a straight play, and I'd love to do a straight play too. you directing it. And another quick story, if you don't mind about oh. that. I love these stories. Me too. Uh, there's one guy, there was a counterpoint thing of we were playing poker, and back and forth, back and forth like this. And he couldn't remember, but looking at the cards and singing, remember his next line, and it was not good so i would i've managed i would managed to get through it every time but right after that scene time and it was an actors the actor's performance all the actors were there to see this performance and so you know the place is wired everything is the the electricity is always in the air and and so we finish this scene and walk off so there's an older character actor makes an entrance right after that And he walks out on stage and his first line, he says something and you couldn't have written it in a farce at that point to make it better. And of course, it never happened again like that. But it's just one performance that happened. He walked out and said his line and the roof came off the place. It was so funny. What was it at the time? And then every line after that was a bigger laugh. The place came apart. All these actors had lost it. The audience was going crazy. And the guy that was playing the opposite, the, the guy I'd was, was, been playing, the, he, he did his took off a shoe and like Khrushchev and started beating the table, tried to, to get the audience to shut up and they couldn't stop. Finally, it was over and afterwards, Jane Hoffman, I think was her name, came backstage, wonderful actress, and Schlade was a casting director, came backstage, she said, Brandon, I'm so sorry. Said, th- th- we couldn't stop. There was no way in the world that we could stop, and uh, I understood because it, it happened to me myself before. Before, let me do. Let me follow that with another story, just like that. When I was doing the killer at the Cherry Lane, I lost fifteen pounds doing this. This was my king, uh, also uh, Richard Bar had worked there before. Just an incredible role, and it was abstract. UNESCO, it was abstract, and you didn't know where you were, but I was. Pretty good back then, and I just I was drenched. And but at the Cherry Lane, you know the Cherry Lane, there's a center aisle. that mm-hmm. comes off the stage. You come up the center aisle. Now at two shows, hold me on this. And then when I did Potholes, also I used it there at the Cherry. I used that same center aisle, coming down the aisle, singing. What am I doing? Is Mayor College? But this time, the in the play the character was. Called the dwarf. And he was like the dark force in the thing. And I thought that's kind of back then. It seemed okay, but even back then, I, the dwarf is dark. I said to Richard Barr, I said, Richard, got one of Brandon's ideas. I said, Richard, forget the dwarf. The audience is the is what I'm talking to. I'm looking at the audience of, of whatever aspect of its time or the situation or the politics of the world at the time or whatever it is, I'm talking to them. And I'm out on the stage with them, ranting with this incredible long dialogue. And at one point I leap off the stage into the audience and land and land in, in the and people look gentlemen like that. And I make it back on it was so it was oh it I, I was I was, as they say, chewing the scene. I was getting it all over me. And so one time, then one time I went back up to the dressing room. In Cherry Lane, the, the, the dressing rooms were very small. The doorways, you have to stoop. I, I'm only 5'10", I had to stoop to get in. Now my, the guy room was Arthur Anderson, a wonderful actor, and he was sitting police also. In and he's over there and I'm, I'd come back in. I, I, I went after the show, I would make my address there in fall. It's like, like doing Lear, it's like Albert Finney in the movie Lear, uh, like that. And I'm like, that one time, Arthur's over here, and somewhere appears at the door, like a gentleman, like 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 a like cream white suit, gray, gray hair. And he says, hello, and gives his name. I don't recognize but I look over to Arthur, and Arthur's going like, so it's somebody important. And he starts, he said, I'm doing a play, I'm writing a play. And it's about a a, a human being that becomes a man that becomes a fawn. I was it's an exhausted state started striking me funny. And I I couldn't stop. And he was going, and I I'm going laughing, and I'm apologizing. I'm so sorry. And I look over to Arthur and he's going, he's going to choke me. He's going to kill me. Finally, finally the, the poor man walks away. And Arthur said, Do you know who that was? I said, I've got no idea.
0: For the listeners here, the playwright that was being mentioned was Charles B. Mel Holland.
1: It's like the audience in, in front of them down at the Van Dam. I, I, I couldn't stop laughing. And then the Century Off Broadway, I did potholes there. Now, with Leroy, Leroy rings. Yeah. Now, you know, Leroy and I did applause, Lorelai, and we did potholes. but we and Leroy and I are great friends to the end and and uh, we talk all the time and and I probably he is so wonderful, Leroy's, you know, he's such a raconteur and such a showman. He gets it all over well i can't I couldn't imagine seeing him in Black Cars. He did it in Florida, and I was I was in correspondence with him along and I was throwing, shooting out on Facebook, uh, headlines, I'm shooting out. I said, hurricane hit South Florida named Leroy Reams. And it was a big hit and he loved doing it. And it, kind of, it it's actually, there's a the tape of the whole show, I think they did it out in California somewhere and it's quite good. And you, you can see it sometimes if you like, you Google Leroy and LaCosche. Uh, but in, in, uh, in Potholes, was written by Eleanor Guggenheim, who was a big New York figure in, in New York politics and whatever. And Ted Simon wrote the music and she did the, the book and the lyrics and everybody knew her. And so everybody that was anybody in New York bigwig political circles came to opening night. And I had wonderful songs to sing. But time, I was going through a divorce at that time and I was uh, drinking heavily. And and I was beside, I had one song to sing, a nostalgic song. And I was, I think, it was writing, but it's a wonderful song. To, and, I, and at the end of it, I got so wrapped up and I started crying on stage. And Leroy was coming on for the next number, so he knew what was happening I and And I walked off, he saved me, you know. So, uh, but in, in in the show, uh, we opened, uh, I think it was the beginning of the second act, back then Mayor Koch Mayor, uh, uh, had a saying called, how am I doing? I don't know if you're aware of that. It was his thing. How am I doing? How am I doing? He could press conference. Hey, how am I doing? How am I doing? So they'd written this song called, How Am I Doing? And I entered down the aisle and shaking everybody's head, singing that song, like Mayor Koch. And I was shaking ex-mayors, ex-governors, beauty queens, everybody was everybody shaking. It was, it was so bizarre and quite wonderful. But I used that same aisle then to get back up on stage and do it. And I loved the show, wonderful music. And again, with me, it wasn't short-lived. But let me tell you this, and probably a lot of actors have told it. <clears throat> even with all the flops and the bombs, you have wonderful experiences. Yeah. And not only with the actors, singers, and the dancers, but with the dressers. I had a wonderful dresser and applause. That son of a gun could do the New York Sunday Times crossword puzzle twice as fast as I could. And I could barely ever, I couldn't even finish it. i got get close. But that that guy, he was so brilliant. you he, he'd say, Hey, buddy, how'd you do? And I said, I got there. He said, Aunt, and he'd show me his Sunday time. He'd, he'd finished and he'd turn around and press off. But I loved that guy. And all the dressers, some I mean, and the stagehands, you get to know this stagehands. And, and other people have told you, if your show goes out of town, for out of town, that's when you get to know people. Yeah. If you're a placement, you go in, uh, you, you all of a sudden, you jump into somebody else's suit and you're out there and you're singing and you go home. I, I lost my train there, what was I talking about?
0: Oh, you were talking about pressers and stagehands. And-
1: oh, right, yeah, thank about- you. Thank God for, for Charles Kirsch, uh, about watching things from the winds. And I watched Bacall. Now Bacall was such a, I think it, she was political. Matter of fact, she was, uh, the stagehands didn't get along with her because she was against the war and stagehands. All the stagehands were wonderful but they had fought for the country, many of them. And they, once you fight for the country your commander in chief is still your commander in chief and you're supposed to go into battle whatever they say, you weren't supposed to think you're a soldier, do as ordered and, and if, you, if, if you've been told you've, you've, you've made a mistake, you've done the wrong thing, your buddies had gotten killed for the wrong reason, it, you can't swallow that if you're a stagehand or any any veteran, that, not any, but for most veterans come back, they, they hate it with draft dodgers and, and all this stuff. But McCall was done, I can't remember if it was that time or sometime, Adelaide Stevenson was running for, for a nomination and she was a big ass fan. Most everybody, well, in the community, in the theater, in the, in the artistic community, you find people of a like mind. There are, people are going to yell at me for this. Well, I'd say 95% of the people I, I love in the theater that I know and enjoy in the theater are, are, are liberal, progressive liberal, Democrats. I'd say 80% are gay men. And some gay women, you know, and, and people. But and back to Tennessee, before I came but to come here, and there are people still live down in those those areas that never been around a community that is not stigmatized. They don't know the people there. They don't know the people that they, they love and whatever. They just say, oh, they're, they're over there. And some of those people, I'm holding my Bible upside down and I'm waving it. I, I'm going to hijack this, this, uh, this religion, like some politics, like one politician, we you know, we knew and see still around Hij- hijack that religion. And that's just awful. But in our community, that's why I talk on Facebook a lot of the time The people say, Oh, you buddy, Brandon, you, you're preaching to the choir. I said, it's comforting. It's comforting to talk to people who think like I think. And I have friends in families like the Civil war like back in in, in in those days brother against brother north against south for what they didn't know for sure what what it was for whether it was for the for commerce for what it said, slavery for what if they got to go and you're fighting on this side and that side and it's pretty much like that today people are so intransigent intransigent and in especially the republicans as i see it are so stuck in like for me to talk to them, as I said, it's one stump arguing uh, with another stump. I, I know I'm going off on an area here, but I, I'm really it's on my mind so much these days and uh, I can't tell you. I wake up thinking about this in the morning. Now, there's some in our business that people say, well, that choreographer is mean or that director is mean. And there are a lot of them. I've worked with, well, I don't bring names right down, but if it pops up, I can tell you who's mean. <laughs> but by and large, it's a wonderful community. And I, to t- I don't want to embarrass you, but I think I'm talking, I want to take the time right now to thank God for Charles Kirsch, that you are keeping this thing afloat with what you're doing and your interest in it. Now, when I was a kid, my father ran a, a, a Chevrolet company in a small town, small Chevrolet company. And I'd like to go to the to where he worked, to go to back in the back where the mechanics worked, but they were always laughing and jumping, and they'd call me, Hey, buddy, did you ever kiss a girl? You know, laughing, nothing obscene, maybe tell some joke or something, nothing that I hadn't heard on the street a thousand times. But uh, one day I came home from school, I, and my mother said, You can't go back to the garage. That was my highlight. I wasn't too hot for school back in the early days. But I'd love to go to where my dad worked. You can't go back anymore. Well, That's why I said, Dad just won't you come back anymore. Why? Because he says the men in the back use curse words. Mama, I heard much worse than that out on the street. All over. I said, but Dad said you can't come back. So I, I had no dialogue with my, my dad about that. It was just yeah. when he said something, that, that was it. Do this, buddy. Go over there. Do that. Okay. I knew he loved me. He came to all my games, my football games and he he never oh he never told me he liked anything at all, everything. I, one time in high school after I ran three touchdowns in, in the opening opening game, I ran into him in the men's room after the game. I ran into him and just the two of us in there urinating. At the same time he looked over and sees me and said, you "Played a good game, buddy." That was the only compliment he the man ever gave me. But he was an Old stoic, he didn't have he head, but kept inside. I guess I don't know, but uh, uh, help me get back because I can't help going off on these tangents. I, but, love, uh, I would
0: love to bring you back to ask about um, upstairs at the downstairs, yeah. which I know that you you
1: waited there. okay. Yeah. So, so, uh, Julius, I was I, like in the beginning, I did summer stock tour of uh, Damn Yankees with several stars. I love doing stories about them. I went to it because I too many stories for hours and hours, but great stories, but I, I was doing it on tour, and Julius Monk, uh, the impresario, that he'd come from the, from the Ruvan Blues over to the Players, which I know Tom Jones talked about it being another, another name, but we called the Players, and it was in the basement, it's down beautiful entrance downstairs, and a little room in the back, the bars along the side, you can go up these marble winding stairs up to the second floor, and the long room with the balcony in the back and a little stage up front. It was like, it was, as they say in those circles, it was divine. And then on the side, there's a dressing room. And going back there is the bar area where they can make, make sandwiches and make the drinks and everything. And and Julius had seen me do uh, uh, the show, and he saw me and said, he said, Brandon, I'd like you to come to New York. And, and uh, stand by," he said. "I'm doing a show at a new place, and said there are three men and three women. They're they're all hired already, but I, I'd like you to cover the three men. I wasn't really sure what cover was, but I'd learn all the parts, and somebody was out, I would go on in their stead. And, and I did that, and and I got to be a waiter at the club at the time because there was no pay for being, and then actually, they got very little money. If you wrote a sketch there, I think you got 15 books or something. It was just, you know, back in the day. And so, but I, I made more money being a waiter than they made on stage being in the show. Of course, they were visible and got more commercials, but I was a waiter and I was doing commercials too. And, and I could go away. I, I did I went away and did a movie in, in Germany with Howard Keel. Howard Keel had been in South Pacific with him the first time I did it later on with him too. But I, I, uh, he took me to Germany. We made this film called Army Command with Burt Reynolds and Howard Keel and and Tina Louise and people, and again and Marty Ingalls won't go into that. But uh, uh, when I came back I had a job as a waiter and who had, had been taking my place while I was gone knew at a time that when Buddy comes back he gets he gets to take the job which saved me. That was what I called my my island in the dream. Be a waiter and do things in between. And I, when I did uh, uh, put it in writing, there's another whole story about that at the Theatre Delicia. I won the Theatre World Award. And if you could look back at all, all the, the people that had won them before. It was quite impressive. Hold that. <laughs> My hometown paper. The Carthage Courier, the only paper in the world that gives a whoop for Smith County. Uh, I, I called my mother and I said, Mama, I said, I won the Theater World Award. She said, now, buddy, what does that mean? I said, my mother, it means that out of the theatrical season they choose like five male and five female performers as being the outstanding new performers of the year. And she said, oh. I said, so I won the Theater World Award. She said, oh, that's, that's, that's good. She had no idea. So I, I went back to New York. A couple of weeks later, I took the Carthage Courier, the was on the front page, but it was, a, it said, uh, oh, no, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a, a thing called a party line. And and it was like, you, not no pictures of a, a line drawing of a little girl on the telephone, and it was like a gossip thing. It was inserted way in the back you know, the local things like, so-and-so came from Dallas over to and somebody played bridge at somebody's house, somebody caught a big fish, and somebody had, a, or whatever like this, and I'm looking, strolling down that thing, and it said, I said, Agnes Maggart of, of Main Street, her son, Brandon Maggard, has recently won the award for being the best actor in the world. I'm looking at this, won the award for being the best actor in the world, it was the, the theater world, not the best actor. And wait a minute, how do you get on the back of that? My mother was known to have a few glasses of wine in the afternoon. So I, even even being the best director in the world, I couldn't make the front page of the Carthage Courier.
0: And what was your experience like covering these three men at the upstairs, at the downstairs?
1: So I, I went on several times there. Uh, I did cut, the first show was called Demi Dozen. First show was called Demi Dozen. And with Jerry Matthews and Jack Fletcher and Charles Hall and Jane Cadell was in it. And and uh, oh and Gene Arnold and uh, oh my favorite. i her name will come to in a minute, because she sang Rod, Roger is a rabbit. But I I I covered those roles and Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt had written if all but one role, one song that Jane that Cy Coleman had written for for Gene Arnold, and, and then for Jack Fletcher, they wrote a song called uh, Mr. Off-Broadway. Everybody called me Mr. Off-Broadway, although they know that's really not my name. It was a wonderful, so I had a great time doing that. But let's, let's blend this into Fantastics now. So Tom and Harvey had written all those shows, and, and Word Baker, who directed the Fantastics, was an assistant uh, maitre d at the time, and we were friends. And he'd seen me do the show, and he said, "Buddy, he said, I got a show I'd like you to do." I said, "What is it?" He says, this "A show called The Fantastics. It's a part of this boy, this young boy, and this young girl, and so forth." And he gave it to me to read. And I said, "Word, Charlie Word Baker, I don't think I'm right to play this part. It's it's, real, it's a little it's it's a little delicate for my shoes." He said, "No, that's the point. I want I want you to bring to it a different a different look." That's it. No, I could never do that. I loved it. I loved it, the thing. I said, I'd like to play El Gallo. He said, well, Jerry Elbarg's going to do that. But anyway, we remained friends in, in, during the whole process of going through that. And again, before, after, I'm in Harvard, we were doing a, a backers' auditions, what for Roadside? I don't know if that ever turned. Anyway, I went to all those and I, I think I helped in those. Anyway, we were all friends. Like that. and. Then the show's going to open, and George Curley, who ran the lights at the upstairs, the downstairs played the Indian in the original Fantastics. So word was pulling people out of everything, and, uh, and I was at the last preview before opening, and I'm on the phone with word all the time about it, and and I'm there, and it really I'm you know I'm loving this show. It is so good. And I I wanted to sing, I wanted to sing. Try to remember right which I did later on, on television. But it opened, and the reviews were terrible. And I called Word the next day. I said, Word, what happened? He said, I don't know. We have no idea what happened. But in the interview, Tom left out. The second stringers came like the next week, off and on and on, and they were nearly all raves. So that's what really, kicked it up word of mouth and kicking it down the street and changing and all that stuff and everybody's saying this and kept it going for 52 years, something like that. So Charlie, had I had $325 at the time to invest in the fantastic which I was offered, to, offered to do, I would have been quite wealthy by now. But I didn't have $325. But anyway, that I love the experience. That's how you meet wonderful people, and and what we do.
0: And so i I would love to talk to you next about working with another sort of impresario, Leonard Silman, on um, new faces.
1: Oh yes, oh yes. Now within that circle, there are impresarios or whatever who are jealous of each other, kind of steal things from one show to the other, but Leonard was one of those people who could really be obnoxious. But one of the most colorful, wonderful, I loved the man, he was one of my best friends Well, Ronnie Graham Marshall Barra, and Leonard Silman. they're all gone now. But Leonard was, he had his townhouse over on the east side. And I did like 60 backers auditions after we'd opened and done New Faces a Broadway for the next, I was going to direct the, the best of New Faces. It all, I have wonderful stories about that, we'll put that aside. But I did it, I did, I, actually I have to cr- crank up a good audition for him and mm-hmm. get a big song. My history has trained me to be well trained me, trained my whole animals, but I'm more vain because I've really trained myself to be as spry as any of. The circus life has off me a lot, the circus is finished, you know he goes in, Oh, I'm a Roman free has the breeze. What's to stop me and why I can live that? You know, I made this, some sort of stories and jokes up about to that. I got the job. We did it in 1966 first. And we did it the first time. Of course, it finally opened in 68. But the first time Ronnie was directed, it, Ronnie Graham directed, he was in it. Marion Mercer was in it. And Marion Mercer was a great friend. She was in some of the a lot of those shows at the upstairs and the downstairs. Right. And oh, so we we played at the Goodspeed Opera House and uh, and uh and we on that tour it was wonderful and we toured all around us. But uh, there were three songs in it by Clark Gessner, uh, and, you know, Charlie Brown, or Charlie Brown, uh, and by the sea, uh, and uh and You are, and uh, another one I can't think of right now. But Clag wrote these when I it was a wonderful song, but it's visual, you can't tell it. It's on the recording, but you can't recording it means nothing. But it was as it was staged, I would be on a stage singing one time. Uh, my character was kind of like what like Walter Kirk called me one time, he likened me to Jimmy Savile, an old comic. And so I'm sitting on stage and on stage right and, look at, and somebody brings out on stage left a huge, a six foot tall letter C, just a big letter C, leaves it there and leaves. And I'm sitting there looking at it and i think, oh, how I'd love to be by the sea. Oh, what I'd give to be by the sea. Using C as C and using C. Is, and then you get out there and I'm so happy to be, but so unhappy at parting from you which and there's a you over here where i was sitting, and <laughs> but then however, what's the matter with me? Why can't we both go down to the sea? Right, and, and another you are. I sang to a big another R and the comic opera we did with Robert Klein and, and Madeline Kahn. I loved it. I loved doing that opera, and it it something it had been done before. to the upstairs, to downstairs, and all around, but with Madeline Kahn, Robert Klein, myself, it was. Wonderful. It's hard to say. I think it comes out okay on the recording, but just it's just a piece that just a gem in its own. Speaking of the actors' run-throughs, at that they came to a preview of the actors' actors' run-through of that. Everybody in New York, because back then they knew about. How do you get started in New York? How do you get on stage? Oh, I got a job. I see what these the people were doing. They're in a show of Leonard Sillman's, and, he, and he'd done all these shows like thirteen editions since 1933, I think it was. So they came, and we would started doing the show, and I came out, and I started my number by the sea, and I couldn't hear the orchestra. The audience started laughing and applauding. Oh, just at the concept of me singing to the idea of the song and singing, me, me doing it, I couldn't hear the orchestra, and I was just hoping I could make it through. but it just blew the roof off the whole thing, and the show itself, we thought, oh my gosh, we're going to be the biggest hit ever. Opening night, what well, we did, like I don't know, a week or two of previews, I don't know, not that many changes. And uh, oh, oh so when I started Ronnie started doing those songs out of town, but then I took over and did them out of town and in New York. And and uh, opening night it was crickets. Nothing. Everybody had, that was there opening night in the small booth theater, half the people had already seen the show, half of them were backers. Leonard, Leonard had somebody that turned a screwdriver somewhere and put a dollar and a quarter in the show and he was there hoping you see some of some big star or something. And it was so quiet. Again, you could hear crickets. It was a shocker. And we ran for just a little while. But, and hair opened, which made us seem like an old droopy spider on a wall somewhere with all that new music and nudity and new time and people coming out of the audience and turning and. and but we carried on, and Robert Klein and I shared a dressing room, and he didn't want to be there. He, I said, he kept saying, I don't want to be here. And I said, Bob. I said, shut the, up, because I love being on stage, and I don't want to hear you dampening what my enjoyment of going on the stage at the Booth Theater and doing this material. Okay, Brandon. But he was he was like that. He was very good. What he did, and he but he always had a that attitude to work for him in his routines. I don't know, but he's wonderful, one wonderful at that. But uh, I, and during during rehearsal, uh, I, they, they, I, somebody came to one of the product, uh, papers, what came to interview me. One of the and, questions was, Who's your favorite living person? I said, Dr. King. Dr. King for sure. And then two or three days later, he's assassinated. And this was before the opening. And the the whole country came down, it was just horrible. And so we went on with rehearsal, and we opened, got the bad reviews. Then Bobby Kennedy is assassinated. And it's even worse, and then there's an actor strike. But we were going to close anyway, but officially it was the actor's track that closed us. But during the, during the run of the show, Sherry Britton, uh, she was a famous stripper. She started out stripping and one of the early strippers. And she started out when she was, I think, 16 years old or something like that. And so she'd seen the show, and she asked me to come uh, to, to see her. And I said, okay. I went to see her, and I knew who she was. She said, Brendan, I'd like you to to be my top, I'd like you to be my banana. What? She said, I want you to be my top banana in burlesque. I, I'd never really seen a burlesque show. She said, and she was doing the show over in New Jersey, under Fort Worth or something, Fort Lee, I mean, or somewhere over there, one of the one of the places. Come and see the show. My comic is an old time, he's a real comic. His name is Irv Harmon, but he's a little old now, and we're gonna revamp the show, put in contemporary material plus the old material, and he can't learn new material. And so he's gonna be leaving the show, but he's wonderful. I would like you to come see the show, so I did. And I went over to New Jersey, I saw the show, and I watched this old comic, this old Burlesque comic, do his sketches. Of course, they were all did, all the comics had their own style. But his style was like, watching him was like what, somebody playing a, 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 a wonderful Mozart piece. Everything was precise. One turn was this way, count of this, boom, do that, walk over there, do that, big laugh, walk slowly, calmly walk over here, turn, say that, big laugh, do this, gosh, he's so wonderful. How can I possibly do that? Oh, I said, Sherry, I don't know. She said, you can do this. I know you can do this. And so, there were, you know, those sketches weren't written down back then. And Sherry knew all of the old sketches like the Panama wine which is a wonderful sketch. Now, there is a, you can Google it too, there's kind of a, there's a, of the whole show that they taped, I don't know if it was ever released, they taped in one of the stock theaters, uh, of of Burlesque. Sherry Britton, and and so uh, I we went into rehearsal, and I said, "Oh, this is pretty good. I'm doing okay, and doing the sketches." And she taught me how to do the the takes, the slow, the timing to do this and do my man on the street thing, which I love to do, which I would really blew the roof off sometimes with that, and uh, and with the here come the judge sketch, and we opened, and I said, "Brandon Maggart, you have landed." this is what you were born to do. And Sherry herself said, Brandon, said, had you been born 30 years earlier, you would have been a huge burlesque comic. I said, think about it, Sherry, if I was born 30 years earlier, I'd be dead now. So I just loved it. And then we did the show, and Sherry and I, then after the show was over, just the two of us came back and played the Latin Quarter. We got a Kind of my wine and sketching. I did a song. Jennifer, my daughter, was 12 years old at the time. She got to come to see me, and I got to dance with her on the floor of the Latin Quarter. And she wasn't as impressed as I was, as I recall. But it was quite wonderful. And then, guess what? I was this big, and I was this high, and I went back to waiting tables. And by this time, Julius had left, and he'd gone on to the to, to Plaza Dine. But I always had a job at the upstairs, at the downstairs, and I would work as a maitre d', a bartender, a waiter. I, I knew everything about the club by that time, and I was friends with Irving. Now, Irving was none of those who were like Leonard, both rather obnoxious at times. Leonard would say the worst things. He took me to see one show, and he started intermission, saying, this is the worst. I said, Leonard, shut up. I, I said, playwright's mother may be listening, you talking at intermission. And he would say. He came to see him, put it in writing and say, or he leaves the theater with a bunch of guys and I'm walking behind him. It's the biggest piece of SHI something I've ever seen. And I laughed. I, I liked this guy, this kind of guy. I don't know. But Irving was a strict kind of guy. didn't like it. I'm friends with his son and have been for all these years, Gary Haber, who's been was my business manager for a long time, still does my taxes. And, we we're on the phone all the time because we have all the stories about all the social, all these old people that work at the upstairs, downstairs, stamp center, and so forth. So, well, um, I'd
0: love to ask you next about the next Broadway show you did, which was Applause.
1: Applause. Uh, I auditioned for Applause. I auditioned for uh, for the director before and he liked me for Golden Rainbow, but there was no part for me. And I auditioned for everybody for Applause, and I got it. I easily. I don't know why I got it. Uh, it's like I, I can—they kind of identified me by looking at me as being a writer. And, and backstage babble, and that that number—it opens in the opening night. I don't sing that song. I, I'm just over in—I'm I'm in shock as the writer. Everybody else is singing, blah, 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 and calling everybody, toasting or whatever, and I'm just standing there in shock after opening my play and drop it. So I get the job, and we go and rehearse it and we have a gypsy run through and, uh, and and Diane McAfee uh, I never heard of her she nobody had ever heard well some she, and uh, she was cast as Eve Harrington now, they they had uh, they had cast auditioned everybody that ever could sing a note in, in London and in, in California and New York and they couldn't decide on this. And Diane had been in these choruses and she said well she's gonna go to audition for the chorus of applause. And she overslept and missed the equity call. So to show up and, call and ask her to read the part, to understudy, you know, so she read the part. And it's kind of like me winning the National hog calling Championship out of the blue. She got the part. She got the part of Eve Harrington, and it was the, you know, the, the Ruby Keeler story again, all over. It hit. And, and, and Diane is from a show business family. Her mother was a big band singer, her father was a big band singer and played uh, uh saxophone in Harry James band. And and her grandmother had been in uh, Millicent had been in several George White scandals. Yeah. And her, her her great-grandmother had been a, a, a ballet dancer in the, the old hippodrome, way, way back then. So it was the big, and so we we did the run-through, we got to Baltimore to do the show, and I become friends with Diane. I admired her so much because she when it, she knew everything that everybody was doing. She was a watcher and a looker. And if the call didn't rehearsal, didn't know it supposed, and Diane would say, "Oh no, you you were supposed to be over there." And she said, "Oh, you're right, Diane. You know everything. Just as, just like I'm talking to Charles Kirsch." She was young and she knew everything and where everything was supposed to go. And so I I really admired her. And she was beautiful. And she had this light, beautiful light soprano voice, which might have been a little light, but it was still so pure and so beautiful. And uh, so we opened in, in Baltimore and boom. Now back then, we had revolving sets, sets. But when we got to Baltimore, Robert Randolph's sets, uh, they didn't have the steel runners yet. And so the scene changed, they'd go, yeah, turn on, it would crash into the next set. And going to the plywood, so the show would stop. And so, if you're in the dressing room, you would hear the music over and over again, that up, but that up, but that that so it would stop. They'd have to back it up, walk the set out, continue to he did that several times. and we in the opening we came down, I don't know, we did like a three hour show. And of course, it was just who wants to do that? and that up, da that up, that kind of thing. Before we opened that, she had, Diane had this big number, the Halloween number that Penny did, you know, that, that Halloween the, the, about the father and the thing right before Buzz comes on and they have that scene. And Ron Fields, directing, and Diane went to him, so, right before the opening and bought it, said, so Ron, you, you didn't give me choreography to, before I'm supposed to dance. There's music written, I'm supposed to dance to it before I start singing. And he was so Frazzled, Ron was. He's rarely frazzled, but he was frazzled. He said, Diane, make up something. Just make up something. And here's this girl with this heavy load on her shoulders. It's huge. Her parents had come down from New York to see it. And this and, uh, hadn't seen her father in a year. Anyway, uh, and, and she went not she just made up, a, improvised the dance thing, went in and sang the numbers. And we did the show. And I still thought she was wonderful. We did the show for Rest of the weekend, okay. We're going they're gonna be working on the show. The we didn't have a number for the end of the first act. We're good friends with Slater. Put in the song with McCall, me, and Ann Richards. That wasn't ready yet until we got out of the, the next stop. And so uh, we did that, and we had parties. And it came the weekend and Sunday. And Diane, I knew that she that she had a friend. This fellow came down from New York. And they were out uh, seeing Baltimore, whatever that meant. They were seeing Baltimore. I guess that's something. Having a nice fish dinner, crab cakes, and and I was in my room and I got a call from Otto Purchase. He was the assistant stage manager, and and he said, "Brandon, there's uh, some news. Bad news." And I said, "Oh God, what is?" It? He said, uh, "But call wanted to tell her, but." She was had to go out of town and Ron had to go out of town, but Diane is being fired. Oh. What? Diane is being fired and we know that you've become friends with her. So before everybody gets back, maybe you should, you, we have, everybody wants you to tell her, to brace her when she comes back in to do the show Monday night. Oh. Uh, okay. So I'm in shock. So, Diane, I, I see her after she comes back from being in the with her boyfriend in the afternoon. And I said, Diane, I got some bad news. She said, What? Have you been fired? And I said, No, I, I, I'm, you've been fired. And she just took it. And she did the, that show the rest of the week. She told the cat, "Left it, put up a note on the bulletin, on the call board. I've been, I've been replaced. Uh, I've eight eight, eight shows to do. Please do not bring it up. I'll do my, I'll do the best shows I can do for the rest of this week." And the cast loved her. And when her final show that that night, a, a lot of the cast people were crying at the curtain call, and she was gone. And Penny came in. And I'd done a television show. I'd done Route 66 for Penny. She came up to me and said before it said, Brandon, I, I hope you know. I said Penny, I'm for the show. You're I know you're gonna be great. Come on out there and do your job and we'll be fine. And we opened and we went out of town and we finally a bit in Adolph and, and the composer. And so the, uh, they all got together and, and came They said they had to come up scene, with a, a, a song scene. for that, for the scene where, where and the, the wife connives the we take Margot to our Connecticut home for the weekend and she can ask to empty the tank to go there and we have this wonderful evening and Margot's supposed to go back and continue the show but but she doesn't know her gas tank's been empty and she doesn't make it. So they wrote this wonderful song and it it was perfect for the show and it stayed there and we, and we loved doing that. And, and uh, then we opened in New York, we got to New York and we as soon as we got there, it seemed like we, we blink, blinked an eye and we opened. We blinked an eye and we opened, and we were a gigantic hits. Put up the big thing, all, all critics, raves. And then the Tony nominations came out. And nearly everybody was nominated for a Tony. I was nominated, Penny, Lynn, Carew, and of course, Bacall. Bacall won, and the show won, and Ron Field won for directing, or Bonnie Frenton. Was nominated also. It was heady time. Because yeah. it was such a huge hit. And of course, at those times, everybody in the world, all the presidents, ex-presidents, when you and you knew if somebody's backstage, see the show that was the VIP that there was Secret Service standing in the wings and all around during the show. That was constant. And then, of course, everybody was constantly coming backstage, old friends of the so it was a wonderful time, and I I had uh, I had a hit. I had a job for two years. My previous shows ran one act, or, or to the intermission, or to the whole show. I know I had some that ran for a while, but this I had a to your job. A lot of people dropped out of the show, but I had to stay. I had a check coming in every week, and I had this huge family to support in a house in Connecticut. And all this, everything was elevated by that time. And so I stayed, I stayed with it to, with a lot of wonderful people. Ann Baxter came in. Yeah. Ann Baxter, who had been the original Eve Harrington in, in, the, in the movie, came in to play Margot Channing, Betty Davis's role. And then Penny Fuller was playing on the Ann Baxter role, which I'm sure Penny, I don't know if you've heard Penny's probably told you about that, but uh, I then I I played it with uh, Ann Baxter, but, and when she opened in it, oh my gosh! Every now let's put it this way: I'd say that of all all the seats in the Palace Theater that opening night, that I'd say ninety-eight percent were gay guys. And I want to tell you that place when Ann Baxter came out, boom! When it, that show was, and she was delighted, of course, and the show went great. The next night. Everybody, it was just people. And it was kind of dead, like s- somebody from Podunk, Arkansas, or whatever. And this, these family had heard it. They got tickets to this big hit. But all the intelligentsia, and, you know, people, that had, not all, but so many had come to see it. It was such energy for that opening. And, and Ann Baxter turned to me right before we go, go on stage, and she says, Boy, this is a plate of crow. But we went on, and she was, she was a trooper. She went on and we did it, and the shows were fine. Then Arlene Dahl came in and did it for a while. Arlene Dahl was another trip, so beautiful. Again, one quick story about her: No matter what happens, everything was fine with her. And I'm standing in the wings waiting to go on, and the phone rings from what's your name's calling from Italy. Would be hello pronto, you know, hello and the thing. And she starts talking before she gets the phone to her. Said, Ponto, hello. And I'm saying, oh my God, she just started talking before that she got the phone. Cause she was so busy being beautiful in the chaise lounge, looking beautiful. Oh, hello. <laughs> and later on, I, years later I was doing a television sitcom out here. And one of the directors I him, he asked her, he said, I he said that he was there that night, that he oh. saw her Dahl, but she was lovely. And, Anyway, I ran out with the trouble. That was my big hit.
0: Listeners, I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did and that you'll remember to come back next time for part two with Brandon Magart. Thanks for listening.